I've always associated the internet with positive environmental impact. After all, you're switching to e-books, not driving to the movie theater, and well, anyone can learn anything about the planet at practically no cost online. But the conversations with our guests for today changed my perception. I mean, I've never really thought about the hidden environmental costs of the internet until the interview or the role of consumption, communication and capitalism in the climate change problem. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Two Minutes to Midnight, a global podcast for a global problem. My name is Julia Brunner. And I am Ayushisha. And in today's episode, we interview Graham Murdoch. Uh, I, I'm Graham Murdoch. I'm the Emeritus Professor of Culture and Economy at Loughborough University. Um, and I'm primarily a sociologist and anthropologist. Uh, but I have a particular interest in issues around communication uh, and also around risk. That is all the things that frighten us, uh, make us anxious. And uh, it was the combination of those two things that, that brought me to uh, develop an interest in climate crisis. Graham is also the editor of the book, Carbon Capitalism and Communication, Confronting Climate Crisis. The book looks at the climate crisis within the wider conversations about the changing relationships between communication and contemporary capitalism, which again is something we're going to be discussing in great detail in today's interview with him. The interview was recorded on Zoom, so please bear with us in terms of any sound quality issues. So Graham, in your book you examine the role of capitalism and communications regarding climate change. How important is capitalism in understanding the escalation of cl the climate catastrophe? Well, it's disputed, but uh, if we look at the history, uh, a lot of people describe the current era that we're living in as the Anthropocene. Um, what, what that means, it's, it's taken from the Greek, what, what it indicates is that this is the period where the intervention of, of humans in the environment uh, is having an increasingly significant effect on altering kind of natural processes. At the, end of the, at the end of the 18th century, you begin to see the steam engine becoming the, the primary motor of the new industrial age. And the steam engine is driven by coal. And so this is the beginning of the, what, you, what we can call the fossil fuel era. Um, and then at the beginning of the 20th century, we, had, we, had, we add in oil. Uh, and, and so we, we build a civilization uh, around fossil fuels and fossil fuels are are finite but they're also massively polluting and so we have a lot of very reliable scientific evidence now that shows uh, surface temperatures of, of, of the earth rising very dramatically after the end of the of the 18th century but what's very interesting is that you see a second spike a very dramatic one from the end of the 1970s um, and we, we can we can look at why that is uh, i would argue that that is the time when you see 
market organization of economies becoming global. You, you, you see the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, you see China turning dramatically away from the old Maoist collectivism towards much more market-oriented forms of, of, of enterprise. You see India uh, turning its back on Gandhi's notion of self-sufficiency and moving towards a much more uh, marketized system. And you see developing economies like South Korea uh, being, uh, first of all, plunged into financial crisis and then as a condition of loans being forced to adopt uh, basically capitalist disciplines. So from the middle of the 1980s, you begin to see a huge acceleration around the world uh, of capitalist forms of organization, private companies, profit generation, and so on. And that requires huge amounts of, uh, of, of energy. Uh, but it's also creating huge amounts of pollution because it's driven by a mass consumer system. What, what drives it is, is encouraging people to consume more and more and throw things away more and more quickly. So it's the combination of those, those, those dynamics which I think has generated the current, the current crisis. And that's why I prefer to call it the capitalocene. There's also a moral argument because if we call it the anthropocene, it seems like everybody's equally guilty. Um, but people in sub-Saharan Africa have almost made no contribution at all to global warming. It's, it's overwhelmingly the privileged countries in the northern hemisphere that have been in the vanguard of this uh, who have made the most contribution historically. So I think we have to take responsibility for that. China's now catching up, of course, um, but uh, it's, it's a, late, a late arrival historically, if you look at the, if you look at the trajectory. So I, I prefer the capitalocene because it, it locates responsibility where it lies, which is with the system of, of corporate domination of the environment. Yeah, definitely. And you also talk about the terms industrial capitalism and carbon capitalism. How do you define those terms? Well, they could be interchangeable, of course. I, I, I use the term carbon capitalism because I'm, I'm particularly talking about the, uh, the, 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 the climate crisis. And I wanted to draw attention to the fact that our industrialized system uh, relies on using up fossil fuels. So that it, it, it was just a, a way of drawing attention to that. Uh, but of course, it's still the same system. It's a, it's a system of industrial industrial production, uh, mass production, mass consumption. And uh, so the, 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 it's not an alternative description. It's just a way of putting a different emphasis on, uh, on the process. Because industrial, the, the literature on industrial capitalism tends to look at the organization of labor and the organization of, 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 of production. I wanted to uh, that's also very important, of course, but I wanted to push attention towards thinking seriously about the material basis of this system, and particularly the energy requirements. In your book, you also write um, the movement of communication companies 
um, to the center of contemporary capitalism and the battle over the climate crisis is the end result of a long process. Um, can you explain that connection and the process you're talking about? Well, it's, the, 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 there are two crucial relationships between the way we've organized communication and the climate crisis. The, the, the first is that it's often forgotten. For, for example, if you, if you think about what we're doing now, yes, it looks as though it's immaterial. We're, we're communicating over distance. There's no physical relationship between us and so on. Um, it's a delusion. Uh, modern communication relies on a massive infrastructure of uh, buildings, uh, networks, and physical devices. I'm assuming you're sitting in front of your laptop. Yeah. I'm sitting in front of mine. Well, this is a machine. It's a, you know, we can pick it up. So uh, the first thing is that we have to accept responsibility for communication systems relying on an enormous amount of physical infrastructure of all kinds. And that physical infrastructure requires us to extract resources, minerals and other resources to build these machines. Um, but it also requires massive amounts of energy. Um, and those requirements have increased in recent years. Um, let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. In fact, I still, I still do this. Uh, I, I keep a lot of my uh, files, my backup files, on a plug-in, uh, a, a plug-in hard disk, yes, a U UBS port. Yeah. It's, it's, it, you know, and, and uh, that's where I keep them. Well, you're encouraged, we're all encouraged, to put them in something called the cloud. Um, well, the cloud is a massive network of enormous factory-like buildings scattered across the world, which require, in order to operate them, enormous amounts of energy and enormous amounts of water. But we don't see that. It's invisible. Um, we, we don't think about the environmental cost of everything we do on the internet because it's not visible to us. Uh, so that's the first problem. There, there's a real material basis to communication which remains for most of us out of sight and therefore unrecognized, but is making a, a colossal uh, contribution to climate change. Just me add one other thing that people have not really thought about so much. We're living in the first age of, of uh, digital communication, where we think, of, we think of the internet as being a device that connects us together. And, and it does. And, and during the, the lockdown, it, it's, it's come into its own. People are doing all kinds of things online, having coffee mornings, dancing, singing, and so on. Wonderful. But what we have to worry about is the next internet, the internet of things. That means we're going to have all around us intelligent machines that will be collecting data about you without your, without your consent. It will do it automatically. That processing all of that data requires incredible amounts of energy. Uh, Bitcoin's another example. One calculation said that in a week of Bitcoin, transactions we're using as much energy as the island of Haiti does in a whole year now we have to think about that these are not 
cost-free transactions. Um, so that's the first really important articulation between communication and, and, and climate change. Uh, the second is that around the world we see the collapse or certainly the, the diminution of public service forms of communication. That, that is particularly broadcasting without advertisements. We're, we're lucky in, in Britain we still have the BBC, but most places don't have uh, advertising free uh, television unless it's a streaming service that you pay for. Yeah. Yeah. We've we've moved towards uh, uh, over the over the last hundred years. We, we've moved towards uh, a system of communication which is primarily financed by advertising, um, and now most of that advertising is transferred onto the internet to Facebook and Google and so on. These are these are not communication companies. These are advertising companies that use communication to entice you to stay there to look at the advertisements. So we've invented a communication system financially that encourages hyperconsumption. It encourages us to consume far more than is sustainable in terms of, of environment. Um, and that's getting worse because one of the things about the way that advertising's moved onto the internet is that virtually all of the old controls have gone. Um, we, we, we're seeing lots of new kinds of advertising, like influencers, for example. You have a seven-year-old boy who opens boxes of toys. Yeah? That's an advertisement. Yeah? Um, and all, everything you see is a promotional, a promotional uh, message. So we, we're living in, a, living in a, an imaginary world where consumption is the center of our lives. It's become... The th it's almost become an obligation. If you don't consume, you're a bad person. You're, you know, you think of the fashion industry. If you don't update your clothes, I, I went. I, I saw a very nice suit the other day in a shop, and it was a ridiculously low price. This is before lockdown, and I went in and I said, "Oh, it's a great suit." I mean, you know, they said, "Yes, it's." Just. I said, "Why is it so cheap?" They said, it, "It's last year's fashion, sir," and I said, "But." What's different? It's a suit. It's got trousers and a jacket. I mean, you know, what is there? And apparently it was something to do with the width of the lapels. And you think, well, this is crazy. This, this is insane. And it is literally insane. So that's the second major problem, that we have a, 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 a commercialized system that puts consumption in your face every moment of the time. And, and that encourages you to think about yourself primarily as an individual uh, with rights to choose things in the marketplace. These are your sovereign rights. The alternative is to think of yourself more collectively, for example, as a citizen who has responsibilities to other people not to mess up the environment. Um, and that, that tension, you see that during the lockdown, that tension between people wanting to do what they do it's my right to go to the pub it's my right to buy things online um, as against preserving public health and stopping people dying um, so we we see we see this very dramatically but it's it's there in our culture 
as a as a fault line that runs right through it and uh, unfortunately we've designed a communication system that massively privileges this idea of this of consumption as being the way to make yourself happy the way to impress people the way to achieve things in life yeah and do you see any way out of this um kind of spiral that you just described like with consumption and also um with communication well i think i think i think the pandemic is 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 has it's dramatized all of these contradictions um and and i think we, we're now we're now faced with a really fundamental choice um the the bad news is that we're things will get much worse I mean, and they already are getting worse in two, in two ways. If, if you look at uh, President Trump has taken this opportunity uh, of, of a, a, a fundamental health crisis to push through all kinds of relaxations of the environmental regulations in the United States. One thing after another, he's done about 10, 10 different things already. Uh, all of them are designed to give more privileges to the fossil fuel industries and to take away environmental regulations. So you see this happening undercover. This consolidates the power of, 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 of the fossil fuel uh, system. Um, you, al you also see, because people can't go out, you see a massive reconcentration of power in the hands of the, the big internet companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon, uh, who are the main culprits, both in advancing this commercialism, but also in, in, in energy depletion. On the other hand, the optimistic scenario is that you see incredible generosity and, and solidarity at neighborhood level. Pe people have been incredibly generous to each other. Um, and there's a new, I think there's a new sense that they don't want to go back to the way things were. So we, 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 we're, we're going to be forced with a big, big battle between the sort of commercialized individualism that, that has dominated our lives for so long and a, and a different ethos, a, a, an ethos of sharing, an ethos of collaboration, an ethos of, of uh, um, being more responsible to each other. I, I really do think now we're at a junction point in history the, 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 all the evidence, the scientific evidence which is still coming out, shows that sea levels are going to rise much faster than we thought. Uh, heat's going to be unsustainable in large parts of the world. We're, we're in a desperate situation. So this is not, this is not a, a, a theoretical question. This is an existential question. And <clears throat> I think the pandemic has dramatized it for people that they realize now that there is a fundamental decision to be made about how we organize things. Um, and um, that's going to be a very lively debate. Do you also have any advice for people who want to do something to help fight climate change? Like with our podcast, at the end, we always have um, three climate action tips for people who want to do something um, kind of grading from something small to something that is a little bit more difficult. Is there anything regarding the topics we just talked about that you think, okay, this is something that everyone can do? 
Well, I, I think one of the one of the things that uh, the, the the current crisis has brought home to people is that it's possible to make a difference at local level, and I my 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 own view is that yes, that there are some policy changes that one would want to campaign for, like switch to renewables away from fossil fuels, like getting your institution to pull all of its investments out of fossil fuel companies. That's, that's something that, that's gathered momentum, and particularly in university, no university that defends open knowledge should have investments in fossil fuels. So that's one thing, if you're a student or you're, you're, you're a teacher, uh, you, you could lobby for your institution to move their money to renewables and, and to socially uh, responsible investments. Uh, but I think there are also very important things we can do uh, at, at local level. Um, one, one of the things that's been happening in, uh, in, in many places, uh, particularly in Germany, is that, that, that small towns have, have got together and have gone over entirely to renewable energy. Um, and they, they've, they've done enough to satisfy their own energy needs but any surplus they generate is sold to the national grid and that money is put back into uh, social projects in the locality so you have a, a, a kind of a virtuous circle so i think a lot of the uh, most effective action will be at local level with your local council you know persuading persuading your local uh, representatives to move and one of the I think optimistic things about what's happened in the States, it's very easy to focus on Trump because it's so grotesque. But if you look across the States, you see lots of mayors in, in towns, you see state governors who are taking the opposite position um, and are acting very uh, uh, concertedly to try to address environmental issues. So don't despair. What happens at national level is not the only kind of politics that matters. And uh, I, I think looking for ways to intervene locally is a way to start. It also gives people a sense of agency. It gives people a sense that something is possible. It's very easy to lose all sense of uh, hope at national inter international level. Um, but at local level, you can do quite a lot that will make a difference. Uh, and if everybody did that, then it would make quite a big difference. So my advice would be, first of all, divest, <laughs> make sure that whatever association or uh, organization you're involved in does not invest in fossil fuels or environmentally damaging uh, activities. And if possible, invests in uh, activities which are, are, are positive for the environment. And Look for ways of organizing locally to do something that will make a difference to your local environment. Even if even simple things like planting trees. There, there are lots of lot, lots of localities now which have tree planting schemes, so that for every tree that you lose, you plant two. Okay, doesn't seem like much, but it makes a difference. Over time, it will make a big difference. So re rewilding, reforestation protecting uh, open areas, all of those sorts of things can be done very easily at local level and they will make a difference. And 
they get children involved. Children get very excited about that. Um, you need, you need, we need to worry about the next generation. We need to convey to children that it really matters what we do. Um, so simple things like that can make a difference. To sum up, here are Graham's tips from the episode. Tip one, research how whole villages and cities have made a switch to green energy and lobby for the same in your area. Tip two, make a difference at a local level. Campaign for positive environment policies around the environment. Tip three, practice divestment to make sure that your organization does not invest in fossil fuels or environmentally damaging activities. Thank you for listening to episode 10 of Two Minutes to Midnight. Follow us on social media at Two Minutes to Midnight podcast and do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts.